Welcome to Redefining Success, the Kingdom Builder Spotlight. I'm your host, Eric L. Dunavant, the Mindset Disruption Strategist and President and CEO of Paradigm. My teams and I redefine success for purpose-driven families and businesses by challenging social norms and balancing family and finance to build kingdom impact and generational prosperity. I believe that there are families and businesses that have learned to give a new definition to the word success from a kingdom perspective. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 20 to 30 minutes where we take traditional thinking and turn it upside down. Welcome everyone. This is Eric L. Dunavit. We're here for another episode of Redefining Success. And today, today I couldn't be more excited. I've been trying to get Chris to come on the show for a year since I launched last year. I have known Chris Field, I think for 15 years now. Um, he is an incredible mind, an incredible heart. Um, he is the founder of Mercy Project and currently the chief growth, growth officer of a fintech startup and software company. And, um, but before I bring him on, I'm gonna stroke his ego just a little bit. I met Chris working for, not when he was working with Marcy Project, um, a nonprofit we'll spend a little bit of time talking about. But what I loved about Chris is when he saw a problem, the way that he thinks about solving it was actually about solving the problem, not putting a Band-Aid on it. And that's what I love about Chris. He is the guy who will go solve the problem. So Chris, thank you for being here today. Eric, absolutely. Sorry it took me a year, but I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> no, I'm glad you could do it. Hey, Chris, why don't you um, start, just tell the audience about who Chris Field is outside of Mercy Project and all the other stuff that you do. Yeah, so I'm husband to Stacy, my wife. We met in high school many years ago now. I've been married 18 years and she's amazing. Definitely the anchor in our family and and personally for me, just that that anchor that lets me go out and do take a lot of the risks that I take because I know I'm going to come home um, and I'm going to have someone there that is going to feel the same way about me, whether I was successful or I failed. So um, love her and, and super grateful for the life that we've had together since high school and four great kids. A girl is the oldest. Um, she's a young woman now. She just turned 13. And and we remember that every single day uh, we are we are reminded that she's 13 and she's wonderful. Her name's Micah, uh, named after Micah 68. And uh, when I started Mercy Project, actually, Micah was a baby in my wife's belly. And we were praying that this little girl would be a woman of justice and mercy when I learned about the children in Ghana being in slavery. So um, Micah's the oldest and then three boys. Uh, they're 11, 8, and 5. So uh, boys love all things outdoors. We live on a couple acres outside College Station, and they're outside pretty much from the time they get home from school till the time it's time to eat dinner and then back out there until it's time for bed. So we do a lot of we do a lot of getting dirty in the afternoons. That's fantastic. Chris, we're gonna, I know we'll spend some time talking about Mercy Project, but let's talk about today, right now. What are you most passionate about right now? I think right now I'm most passionate. I just turned 40 in September. And, you know, as I think about this decade of my life, I I want to make the biggest impact possible. I mean, I think 
you know, you're at that, you're getting close to that halfway point of your life and you start thinking really in terms of, of maximizing leverage Mm -hmm. and you've, I've learned a lot of things. I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've had a few successes, but how do I not keep those things to myself? How do I make the path behind me for those coming behind me? How do I make that smoother? Mm-hmm. And, and again, to me, the word is leverage. I, I want to leverage the gifts, the talents, the treasure that I have to make the biggest impact possible f- to make a difference that will outlast my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, to begin building something that will still be around long after I'm gone. Yeah. And I think some of that starts with the lessons you learned inside a mercy project. I would love to, if we could today, and maybe we'll have you back on another time to talk about other stuff, but I'd love to spend some time talking about mercy project. Would you, I think here's what would be compelling. Tell everyone kind of how you got the vision to even start this. And I think you'll go there, but I'm going to nudge you a little bit. Like what you saw that was broken that even about the systems that are already there that caused you to so passionately go after what Mercy Project is. Yeah. So, I mean, it started, I read a book. I was 26 years old. We were pregnant with Micah. I was pastoring a church in Dallas, but honestly, probably a little bit depressed. Uh, I was not, my personality was not a great fit for formal ministry. Just the pace that I like to go and and what makes me feel most alive is is building things and and just ministry is hard. I mean, any pastor knows like like the the incremental, very very slow growth of most any church and the progress. You know, it's measured in years at churches, not in minutes. And so, I didn't have that insight at the time. I just knew that I I was struggling and. Happened to read a book that talked about children being sold into slavery in Ghana, Africa. And now, you know, I always have to tell people now, like we, we're all very aware of human trafficking now, but 13 years ago when I read this book, no one was talking about human trafficking. Mm. You know, there was this guy named Kevin Bales who's done a lot of stuff with an organization called Free the Slaves. He was beating this drum in the 90s. Nobody was listening. Mm-hmm. Nobody cared that it was there was more people enslaved today than at any point in history. Like, he couldn't get an audience. I mean, just no one was listening. We were talking about water wells and that was kind of the hot thing, but no one was talking about trafficking. And so I was shocked when I read this book. I mean, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is happening now, like right now. And so I Googled the author's name. I called her. I asked her if I could go to Africa with her. I showed up in Ghana with her three months later. I went out on the world's largest man-made lake started meeting these little kids, especially one little boy named Tomas, who was about nine years old. And I just came back brokenhearted. I mean, just truly devastated over the reality and the juxtaposition of the world I wanted my daughter Mm -hmm. to grow up in and all the aspirations I had for her life and the mountains. I knew I would move to help her be the best version of herself she could be. To contrast that with the lives of already born children who were fishing 14 hours a day and came from families so poor they couldn't afford to feed them. I just it, it, I just wept when I sat on the couch with my wife the day I got home from that trip. I mean, I just wept and said, we have to do something. And so the first thing we did, I think is a pretty common thing in America. We raised money, we raised about $75,000. And the intention was to give it to another organization that was already working in Ghana. But 
over the nine months that we raised that money, I went back to Ghana twice more. Mm. And on those trips, I realized no one was really getting at the root cause of the problem. And I can't really tell you exactly how I made that discovery because I don't have any backgrounds in business. Like I don't come from a family of root problem solvers. Um, but, but, you know, there was some sort of divine truth in me that was like, I see some solutions and this isn't it. Like well-intended, really nice people think they're doing a great job, but every one of these, and they're basically buying the kids out of slavery. So the slave owners could buy a kid for $20 and sell them for a hundred and they just five X their investment. What are they going to do with a hundred? They're going to go buy five kids. I mean, doesn't feel like that complicated, right. but that's kind of charity. It, when you really think about it sometimes is, you know, the, the Western view of that was, well, we could rescue a kid out of slavery for only a hundred dollars. And it was like, I mean, I guess like not, not really <laughs> like right. actually enslaving five more children for a hundred dollars, but, but nobody wants to hear that. Right. We send the emails we, we have the little snippets and people, we take what we want, we bury it in our hearts and we go on. So that really bothered me. And I mean, really bothered me. And so I, I thought, well, you know, we've got a decision to make. Either we can walk away and we've done more than most everybody, or we can double, triple, quadruple down and show up in Ghana asking a totally different kind of question. And so that's what we did. I mean, we had a six month old baby and I quit my job at the church on September 1st, 2010. And I sat there on my bed the first day Googling, you know, how, why are children trafficked into slavery? The uh, you know, State Department does a huge study every year on every country and, and how much trafficking there is. I'm reading the report about Ghana and, you know, I'm just like how to raise money. And I mean, I'm just how, you know, all the things. And but I never felt so alive. I mean, in that moment mm. where I should have been terrified. <laughs> I would have fought a thousand people that day. It was like, bring it on. Who wants to challenge me? Like, no, like you cannot stop this, this hunger and this thirst for righteousness. You know, it was like the arc of mercy that Dr. King talked about. It was like, no, we're figuring this out or we're going to die trying. And I'm okay if that's what happens because this feels worth it. And I think for me, Eric, that what I, what I always felt compelled by was like, you know, there are questions we can ask the generations before us that they have to kind of look away when they answer, right? And they say like, well, you know, it was very complicated. And, I, and it was, I get it as much as I can. I didn't ever want my kids to ask me questions that I had to look away. You know, even if my kids said, dad, when you heard that this was happening, even if I said, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. It didn't work. But here's what I did. That's a better answer to yeah. me. Yep. Man, you guys, it was really complicated. I mean, they're all the way in Ghana. What am I supposed to do? I'm just a pastor. Like that wasn't okay to me. That wasn't an answer I was willing to, to give. And so, so yeah, we just started showing up in Ghana, asking questions, learning, spent almost an entire year just listening to the Ghanaians themselves tell us why the problem was happening, sourcing the kids back to the families, which is when we realized this is really a poverty issue, mm -hmm. not a not a bad guy issue. Everybody wants to have a bad guy, right? One time, a one time a guy who writes movies uh, was talking to me, and he said, I, "I really like to think about writing a movie about Mercy Project." I said, "Okay, let's talk about it." And he said, "Tell me about the bad guy." And I said, "Oh, 
poverty. And he goes, oh, I can't do anything with that. No, I, can't. I, I need there to be a bad guy. What, tell me about one guy you had to beat. I was like, no, it was a system. I mean, it was a, it was a poverty so poor that you don't even have, you don't even know you, what you don't even know about money. Like you don't even yeah. know you don't have money because you've never had money. I mean, like kids eating dirt on the ground. Like I, I, I that's the bad guy. And he's like, yeah, I love the story, but no one will watch a movie like that. There has to be a bad guy. Mm. And I get it, right? We have to have someone to blame. And the, the 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 blame here is it's a broken system where what we take for granted with education and training and jobs, and we think, well, if you just if you just work hard enough, you know, you'll differentiate yourself. It's like, no, no, that's not actually, you know, how it works in these villages where the you know, the average fisherman who owns a child has first or second um, grade level of education. Like, and they were actually traffic children themselves in most cases. Mm. They can't just show up in the big city and say they want to get a job at the bank. Like, that's not how it works. And so we just started unraveling this really complicated story, but it all came back to the, this is an economic problem. And if we yeah. can solve the economic problem, which gives us a chance to solve a heart problem, because now we've got their attention, yep. then we can begin to really get at the root of this. And so that's what we did. So we 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 go into these rural communities um, where they own the children, where the people are poor and where many of them were traffic children themselves. And we teach them how to grow fish in cages. Um, aquaculture is the, the technical name. We grow Nile tilapia and they can grow 10,000 tilapia at a time. So, you know, the work of just a few men is far more efficient than the work of many children. And because we've solved their root problem and we've increased the average family's income by 16%, they are willing to voluntarily release the children back to their biological families where we have a whole process with social workers and the kids attend school or trade school. So we've we've worked with 29 uh, Ghanaian fishing communities. So mm. More than 10,000 people that are now benefiting from those cages and rescued and reunited 249 children back into their biological families. And the thing I'm most proud of, I'm proud of our process because it is deep, but honestly, the thing I'm most proud of is the depth over time. So we've never had a child re-trafficked mm. and you know, other organizations that would be similar to us. 30 to 50% of the children get retrafficked because they just, they don't have the back end commitment. And, yeah. you know, for us, we'd rather have 250 kids home than a thousand that we rescued and 500 of them are going to be back on the, on the lake. I mean, like we've really tried to take a long-term approach, kind of the Dallas Willard, a mile deep, you know, uh, mm -hmm. instead of a mile wide. And, and that's what we've done over the last uh, 12 years. Talk a little bit about, because this was one of the things as we were kind of walking along as you were discovering this, you know, it's a, you come back to, it's a poverty issue. Kids being sold into slavery is a poverty issue. Right. And one of the things that you found about trying to return the kids to their home, like you had to solve it on the back end, not just for getting them rescued, but you had to solve it from out on the back end of keeping them from being sold again because of the poverty. Could you talk a little right. bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it is trying to understand where these kids come from, you know, and you start meeting moms who show you a little jar of a few dollars and they say, you know, this is my jar that I've been saving up to be able to go and get my child back. 
but I just haven't been able to get enough money. And you, you ask a mom, you know, do you even want, this is the kind of question you ask at the beginning because you don't know. You say, well, do you want your child back? Like, I don't understand the circumstances. If, and they say, I literally pray every single night that I would have the resources to get my child back, but I didn't even have enough money to feed them. My husband left or my husband died I had more mouths than I could feed. And I heard that if they went to work for someone else, they would at least have food every day. That's what they say. And so then you begin thinking, oh man, this is, you know, this is not a mother who was unwilling to, to do her duty. You know, it's almost the opposite. It's like, this is a mom who loved her kids so much that she would endure the pain of being separated from her child so that that child could actually have food. I mean, in some ways it almost is more selfish to keep the kid you can't mm. take care of than to to give up that relationship and then to live every single day with the pain of knowing that that child you know is is having to work but at least in the mom's minds you know at least they're safe and you know there's a there's a quote that a the woman I never remember her name people can google and find this um but it's I've never forgotten it it was, it was about um it was it was when it wasn't about immigration, but it was it was about a refuge being a refugee and and running fleeing from a country where you're unsafe. Right. This wasn't about Ghana. But 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 the woman said, I'll never forget this. It was in a poem. And she said, no one puts their child on a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Mm. And and I, for me, like that epitomizes the mothers in Ghana, right? Like we would look, especially as Americans with so many resources, we're like, a mom would do what? And it's like, wait, no mother would put her child on a fishing boat unless that water was safer than the land. Mm. And mm. so for us, it's going back into those families and doing comprehensive social welfare work. I mean, it's understanding why are you poor? What do you need? What do you not have? What access do you not have right now? And sometimes it's as simple as things, just as an example, like Ghana has national health care. Well, you have to be able to sign up for it by literally signing your name. Well, we have moms who can't sign their names. Mm. And so they're told, well, you can't sign up for this because you have to be able to sign your name. And our social workers go, wait, you can't punish her because she grew up in a an education lacking system in Ghana, she's going to use her thumbprint. And if we have to bring an attorney in here, we will. Mm. And now all of a sudden that mom has access to healthcare that she didn't have six months ago. Oh. And she's bringing in the witch doctor to try to make her kid well, because she doesn't know what else to do. Right. So sometimes it's as simple as that. Uh, we've given women micro loans, taught them how to run businesses, taught them how to buy at scale, taught them how to balance their books. Um, bought them old dorm refrigerators that come over on boats from China that were thrown away in the U.S. so that they can keep their food till the next day and not have so much waste. Uh, we do a lot of work with the child-parent relationship. How do you raise a teenager? How do you talk to a kid? How do you not use physical force to where your 16-year-old wants to run away? You know, how do you talk about um, your children about sex, which is something they would never talk about openly in Ghana? So it's like. How do you teach your children to to use mm. protection if they're going to have sex? Like all of these conversations that our social workers are basically helping these parents understand how to be parents that they were never taught before. And and so, you know, in that way, our social workers are really the backbone of our entire process mm. in Ghana because they're in the trenches 
with these families. We're doing extra tutoring for the kids so that they're not as far behind in school. Um, you know, it's it's a really comprehensive process that ensures that we're not just making a great email or newsletter, but that we're actually creating like meaningful multi-generation transformation. You know what I love about you, Chris, though, is, um, and we're, we're going to run out of time. We've got about 10 minutes left. So I'm going to just transition this just slightly is yeah. one of the things that I love that you do is you're not afraid of the hard thing. Right. There's a lot of people who would look at this problem and go, OK, well, you know what? I, I don't want to do that hard thing. What's the minimal acceptable amount that I can do? What, yeah. So as you were kind of going into this, um, what was it that kind of kept you motivated to keep doing the hard thing, even when maybe even people be like, man, Chris, just give up, man, stop. And what kept you going on that front? I mean, I think I've always had this insatiable desire that my life would mean something like I mean, you know, really that started when I was 19. I was I was a pretty lackluster student in high school. That that part of me never got activated. I kind of, my parents would always hear the word potential in parent teacher conferences. But when I was 19, I ran my first marathon untrained. I ran for mayor of College Station, my hometown. I got third out of five candidates and then I was hired to direct a camp for inner city kids at the end of that summer where I was in charge of 50 college-aged staff and 600 uh, youth from around Texas. And so I think for me at 19, I realized the only thing limiting a life of massive impact was me. Mm. Like those walls that I felt like were around me that seemed like they were made out of metal or wood, they were made out of paper mache. Mm. And I know you have a daughter who loves theater and my oldest daughter, Micah, loves theater. And it's like a stage set, right? From the seats, a stage set actually looks really good. Yeah. But then you walk and look at a stage set from the side and you're like, wow, I'm surprised that's still standing. Like that's <laughs> actually kind of is, I don't know if OSHA has approved this stage, right? And so to me, that's how it felt. It was like, there's this, there's this uh, facade that, you know, only certain kind of people make this kind of impact. They're super rich or they're super smart or they're super driven or, you know, they've got some sort of, uh, you know, some part of their DNA that's just different. It's like, I don't believe that. I think the people who make a huge impact are the people who wake up every day with an intention of making a huge impact. Mm. And so I just decided at 19, like, I'm going to be old someday. I'm going to be sitting in a rocking chair and I want to make sure I have no regrets about what happened. Like that's that's my greatest fear is that I'm going to get to the rocking chair and I'm going to be like, man, I can't believe that I just sort of let life lead me instead of me leading my own life, you know, and, and that I lived in such fear and I didn't just listen to that courageous, brave spirit always calling me to something bigger, even when it meant I would fail, you know, as just this just part of the process. And so I think that's the answer for me, Eric, is like, I, I, I was, I was more fearful that my life wouldn't matter than mm -hmm. I was of failing. And I think when, when those scales tipped yeah, and I, it, I, I was more scared of a life of insignificance and wasting my life mm -hmm. than I was of failing, mm -hmm. then there, then what's left to stop you. I mean, at that point, it's like, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you know, let's go. I, who cares? You you basically accepted failure. You've accepted failure as part of the process to greatness and impact. Mm. And so you're not actually, it's not only that you're not scared of it anymore, you're actually expecting it. You're waiting 
mm. for it to happen. And when it comes, you're like, oh yeah, I knew, I knew this was part of the process. I knew this was going to hurt. I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable, but this does not surprise me. I'm going to move through it. And the only way through it is through it. And then this is the path to the greatness. And I'm just, and I'm not going to be surprised when it, when it hurts, because that's a commitment I made is that I wanted to make a massive impact and failure and pain is going to be part of that process. And if mm -hmm. it weren't, everybody would do it. Yeah. What do you find? What What is the great limiting factor to being able to almost, I think the word I would use is accept that pain is part of the process. Because I mean, I know you've had a chance to be an adjunct professor at A&M. You've had a chance to speak. I think you've got a TEDx out there. I mean, what all, what have you found as you've kind of run into people that is that greatest limiting factor? Is it just between our ears? Yeah, it's, it's our own imaginations. I mean, it's our own, it's our, it's our concern what others think about us. We live in a country, sadly, where when you don't play small, people judge you mm. and their, their own insignificance becomes a mirror for you, make them uncomfortable. It's like when somebody's trying to get healthy and their friends who are not healthy kind of half joke about, oh man, you know, he only eats salads or she exercises all the time. They're out of their own lack of confidence about who they are. Th they are overwhelmed by you, right? And, mm. and intimidated by you. And so I think we live in a country where people are intimidated by people who go for it. Like mm. we love to read about them once they've made it. We pray, we, we make those people heroes but for every Elon Musk, there's a million entrepreneurs who their friends think they're idiots <laughs> right. for going for it instead of just taking the static job. I mean, and and it's because their friends don't have the guts or the courage <laughs> to stomach what the failure that might come. And so, yeah, I think I, I think it's being honest that the people are it's the people you love, some of them that are going to be the biggest, loudest voices and telling you not to do the thing because mm. their own fear for you, because they care about you, they don't want to see you fail, keeps them from seeing the greatness. Mm. And, and so in that, they kind of want to put their arms out and say, whoa, you can't do that. It's like, well, why not? Like, well, because you could fail. It's like, yeah, I'm going to fail, by the way. Like, 100% <laughs> going to be part of the process. I'll probably need you to help brush me off when I do. Let's have a beer or a bowl of ice cream when that happens. One day we'll laugh about it, but excuse me, please. Like I wow. have an impact I'm ready to make. And uh, yeah, so I think that's it. It's it's just, um, that's this isn't how people live. I mean, hmm. we play small and, and we're risk averse and we just, you know, we sit in the stands thinking that we're spectators. And it's like, we think the people who, put a helmet on and, and walk out onto the field or we think they're crazy. You know, and we kind of laugh awkwardly like, huh, what, what does he think he's doing? You know, but it's like, those are the people that are actually out there changing the world is the ones who are willing to say like, you know what? Life is not happening to me. Yeah. Um, my, as one of my college professors in seminary said, and I've never forgotten this, my past may explain me, but it doesn't excuse me. Mm. And so, yeah, everything that happened to this moment, it matters and it shaped me and it formed me and it it definitely makes a difference, but I'm not going to use that as a crutch for what I'm going to become next. And mm -hmm. so 
you know, I think that's the difference is some people are willing to take that risk and, and accept and embrace failure as part of the process. And, and some people just aren't, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, I mean, you've done so many amazing things that people want to kind of follow, keep up with what Chris Field is up to or what you're doing. What's the best way to do that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm on all the social media channels under my name, Chris Field, uh, or uh, Disruption Chris, like on Instagram and and Twitter. I've written a couple of books, like you mentioned, uh, Disrupting for Good was the first one. And the last one was A Billion Hours of Good. Yep. Um, so yeah, I would love to connect. I have a website, meetchrisfield.com, which is more for my speaking um, that I do. So, but if there's a, there's a form on there, people can fill out and that comes straight to me. So if somebody hears this and feels inspired or has an idea of something that they want to work on, maybe together, they're happy. I'm happy for them to reach out to me. Okay. Chris, um, I do want to ask you this question. Is there anything that you wanted to get a chance to talk about today that you didn't before we finish up? I don't think so. This was great. Okay. All right. So my last question, you knew it's coming. Yep. In three generations, what do you hope your great-grandchildren remember about you? Yeah, I, I love this question because one of my one of my personal financial goals is to leave enough in a trust for multiple generations of college. Mm. And what I want those kids to know about the great grandpa that funded this trust is that he wasn't just good at making money. In fact, that almost happened by accident mm. when he committed to doing everything he could to help anyone that he came across. And, you know, and I hope they'll, they'll feel really proud. Like, Oh, we had this crazy great grandpa that was a, a modern day abolitionist and he mm. wrote books and, he helped businesses and he helped launch nonprofit. I mean, the guy was, it was crazy. All he ran marathons, he ran across the Grand Canyon. Like I want them to, to, to tell that story. And then I want it to them to think like that's in my blood too. Mm. Like those things that, because I didn't really have that. Like I, I look around in my family and I don't really have, there's really no one like me, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> Um, I have a grandpa who died in Vietnam when my mom was seven, her father. And the older I've gotten, the, the more that loss has grieved me because I've realized, I think oh, I am a lot like him. Yeah. He's kind of the missing piece in me understanding some of who I am. And, and so I want my great grandkids to say like, you know, we had this great grandpa and he did all this crazy stuff and he was super generous and he helped me pay for college. But most of all, he made our family believe that greatness and impact was a choice. Mm. And so our family story is how do we do the most good we can do wherever we find our feet today? Mm. And so that's the story I hope that my grandkids are, oh. are telling. And it's, you know, that's what I'm working. That's what I'm working hard for is that that'll be a story that they feel proud to tell. I feel like you're well on that way. Chris, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you and before we finish the show, I'm going to leave one little nugget because this is a totally, there's so many different faces and sides to Chris Field. But if you have not looked up, look up Bluebell Christmas Cookie Ice Cream Review. This yeah. is the man who wrote the review. I promise you, you want to read it. Um, it will make you smile. It has nothing to do with this interview today, but you need to catch it. So, <laughs> Chris, thank you for being here. Thanks so much. Everyone, we will be with you again next time. Have a fantastic day. God bless you.
Eric L. Dunavit here. Thank you so much for joining us for Redefining Success, the Kingdom Builder Spotlight. If you're a business owner or a family who is actively redefining success or have thoughts on kingdom impact or generational prosperity, and you would like to be a guest on the show, then I invite you to apply. Visit www.ericldunavant.com slash podcast slash apply. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love for you to share that either through text or social media. Take a screenshot of the show and share that and share what you learned. If you know anyone that should be a guest on our show, we would also love for you to connect us to them. The best way to do that is to use hashtag redefining success. I love to read your thoughts and shares on social media. And we also are honored just to get any recommendations of people that you think we should be interviewing on the show. We are constantly adding new content, adding new podcasts. So first and foremost, I'm going to recommend that you subscribe so that you don't miss a thing. Also, you all of your likes, your reviews, your shares, all of that makes a big difference to the show. So if you'll include those when you can, we definitely appreciate it. If you'd like to get in touch with me, visit www.ericl360 Dot com and all of my connections to social and other ways to get in touch with me are there. This is Eric L. Dunavant, the Mindset Disruption Strategist, signing off. Until next time.